Hey guys, welcome. My name is Brian. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at the Summit, and uh, really glad that you're here, uh, especially as we continue our Stories of Grace series. Like Andy said, uh, this is our seventh week in this series, and what we've been doing is asking, uh, we started really with some big picture questions about uh, the nature of the relationship between God and humanity. And so a few weeks ago, we asked really, really big picture questions like, where do we come from? Uh, but last week, what we began doing was seeing a shift in what it was that we were emphasizing and going from the big picture to zooming in on the personal. And we made this shift in the life of Abraham as we started to zoom in and zero in on this family and this man named Abraham. And what we, what we asked last week is the question of what does it look like for, God, for God's call in my life? What does it look like for God to have a personal call in my life? And this week, we will be asking a, a very similar personal question as well. We will be asking a question probably many of you have asked, a question I've certainly asked myself, the question of can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Or to put it another way, is faith in God a reasonable thing? Is it a reasonable thing? Now, many of you may have not struggled with this, but my guess is for most of you, in some area or some stage of your life, you have struggled with this in a mighty, mighty way. For me, I remember struggling with this in particular uh, as I was 18 years old, leading up to when I first became a follower of Jesus, asking if this is reasonable for me to believe. Is the Christian faith reasonable for me to believe? And then when I first became a Christian, me struggling with this question as well. Uh, I remember speaking to a, a friend of mine uh, who was much more educated and much more mature in his faith at the time when I was 18 years old, and asking him this question. And I just told him, like, I, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me with this? Can you help me wrap my mind around this? And he said, what you need to understand is you don't live in a vacuum, but instead you exist in a culture that is answering this question for you. And what this culture is doing is providing a resounding no to that answer for you again and again and again and again. And he said, when it boils down to it, what you need to understand is that culture is giving you an intellectual reason to reject God, an emotional reason to reject God. And if you're sort of passive, if you aren't critical thinking, critically thinking, if you're not aware of the things that you take in, what you're going to realize is you're just going to absorb the culture's answer to that question. Can God be trusted? Is it reasonable to put faith in God? The, the natural response is to answer that question, no. See, I mean, that shouldn't be a foreign concept for you. Even last night, as I was watching TV, we were watching Mean Girls. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie, but I was watching Mean Girls with some friends. And like three minutes into that movie, there's this like seven-second scene that gets at the heart of the intellectual objection to God, where it presents the picture of a Christian family. And it's this like family with 12 kids who are all homeschooled. And one of the kids, in like the worst Southern accent I have ever heard in my entire life, goes, and on the third day, God created the Remington Bolt Action Rifle so that human beings can kill the dinosaurs. And like in that moment, it's presented a picture of what the intellectual viability of Christianity is. Like if you actually believe that God is who he says he is, if you really believe that the Bible is true, like you must be ignorant like these people. You couldn't possibly be educated. You couldn't possibly be intellectually responsible. You couldn't possibly believe this. And many of you who are college educated and went through classes on sociology or psychology or history or religious studies know, just like I did, that you had teachers that basically presented it that nobody with half a brain actually believes that God is who he says he is in the Bible. 
Now, it's not only that. It's not only the intellectual area that you're being pushed from, but it's also the emotional area as well. And I saw this in a movie a few weeks ago. I told you last week about how I saw the movie The Gray, uh, which apparently a bunch of you saw since I mentioned it last week, which I feel like I should start getting like commission for the things that I recommend and the people go and see or the restaurants people go to or the ice cream people eat, things like that. And in that movie, you know, you go in, you sort of think it's just going to be a, a story about some men fighting some wolves as these men have been stranded in the middle of Alaska and they get stranded in the midst of a wolf's den. But yet instead, it's a deeply philosophical and religious movie. And one of the central questions it's asking is, is in the midst of the crap that life throws at us, in the midst of men being stranded and being killed off one by one, like can you actually believe that God is good? It's, it's getting at the emotional argument of saying, surely if you have half a heart and you have some sort of awareness of the injustices that are taking place in the world, you, you can't possibly believe that God is good. And in fact, one of the climactic scenes of this movie, this is no spoiler alert here, is Liam Neeson, the lead character, looking up at the sky as he's been fending off these wolves, asking God, where are you in the midst of this? God, why, oh, why haven't you proven yourself? God, screw faith. I'm going to handle it on my own. You couldn't take care of me. I'm going to take care of myself. And in just in a couple of weeks of seeing movies, what, we, what at least I've experienced is the culture does encourage us to believe that the answer to that question, can God be trusted? Is it reasonable to believe that God is for our good? Is it reasonable to believe that God is who he says he is and is involved and will take care of us? Is that the answer is a resounding no from our culture. Now, this is where I love the Bible because the Bible is totally countercultural. And even though there is a very loud no from our culture, there is an even more resounding, even louder yes from the scriptures. And we're going to see that tonight in the life of a man named Abraham, because Abraham is a man uh, in the New Testament. He is, he is called the man of faith. But don't let that fool you to think he never had any trouble or any problems whatsoever. What you're going to see tonight is he has real legitimate doubts. He has real legitimate struggles. He is undergoing a great crisis of faith. And what we're going to see is an image of God that we talked about a few weeks ago, of God as a good and gracious and loving father who gets involved in the mess and the questions and the struggles of his children whom he loves. And rather than scolding Abraham for his doubts, rather than criticizing him, rather than being far off, what God, God is like a good and gracious father who does get involved, and he gets involved in the climax, in the climax of Abraham's questioning, at the peak of his crisis of faith. God, like a good and gracious father, comes and gets involved. And he gets involved in two major ways. He comes and he speaks to Abraham. And then he comes and he shows to Abraham. He speaks and then he shows. And the climax, the, the consequence, the result of God coming and getting involved in Abraham's doubt of, of speaking and showing is the consequence of Abraham believing believing and saying, even though I don't have all my questions answered, even though I have perfectly reasonable reasons to doubt, I am choosing to believe that God is who he said he is. He is good, and he is for my good, and he is involved, and he will take care of me. And Abraham's answer to that question, can God be trusted as faith in God reasonable, is a resounding yes. So let's jump into the text. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to start in verses 2 and Three, okay? We're going we're gonna to look at verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of, of my household will be my heir. Now, if you can remember all the way back to last week, what God did was he made a promise to Abraham. He said, I am going to make a great nation out of you. And it implied in that is that Abraham would have children who would have children who would have children who would have children who would scatter across the face of the earth. And in that process, scatter the name of Abraham and scatter the glory of God in the process. But here is a situation where the circumstances of life are coming head-to-head with the promises of God, okay? The circumstances of life are coming head-to-head with the promises of God. Because Abraham's saying, God, I know what it is that you've said. I know what it is that you have promised. But when I look at my circumstances... When I look at the fact that I'm in my old age, my wife is in my old age. When I look at the fact that I am childless, when I look at the fact that my wife is barren, when I look at my circumstances, the reality is, is that it's just difficult for me to believe. It's just difficult for me to believe that you're going to come through in the way that you said you're going to come through. The circumstances of life seem completely opposite of those promises that you've made to me. Now, many of you can relate to this. Maybe some of you can relate to this. Not a whole lot of us are married. And so for many of you or or several of you, you know exactly what it's like to really, really want a child. And month after month after month after month to have that anticipation build up in your heart to hope that there's like a smiley face on the stick that says you're pregnant and you can rejoice, but instead you have to imagine what it was like for Abraham. Maybe you experienced this month after month after month after month after month, negative, 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 negative. It was an emotionally draining and punishing process. Now, most of you can't relate to that whatsoever. You're young, you're single. Uh, if you did get a positive pregnancy test, that would not be good news. That would be very bad news. You'd be you know, probably more frightened right now than you could possibly be any other time in your life, right? But you can relate to this. You can relate to what it's like to have the promises of God come head to head with the circumstances of life. You know what it's like to be in a place where you say, God, I know you want me to have a good and godly marriage. I I want that. I want to honor you in that way. But when it comes down to it, like I can't even get a godly date. You know what it's like to say, God, I want to have a great job where I make a lot of money, where I'm incredibly generous and I leverage my influence for your glory, but I can't even like get a temp job right now. You know what it's like to say, God, I know you say you're in control of all things. I know, I know you say that you're sovereign. I know that you say that you are good. But when I look at the, the crap that life has thrown at me and the things that are happening, not just to me, but to the ones that I love, I mean, the reality is that's just a really hard thing for me to believe. All of us, probably in some way, if we have any sort of awareness of our own lives, can totally relate to Abraham, to be at a place where the circumstances of life come face to face and seem to contrast the promises of God. And so you can relate to what Abraham says in verses 2 through 3. God, I don't have a child. You've promised a child. I need a child if this is going to come through. What are you up to? How is this going to go down? How are you going to make this happen? Where are you? What are you going to do about it? If things keep up this way, I'm not going to have an heir. My heir is going to be this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, which I always wonder if he was like in the next room, like overhearing this prayer and being like, why did you have to throw me under the bus? Like, it's not my fault, you know? But, but what is going down here? What are you going to do about it? And so Abraham doubts. He has a crisis of faith. He struggles to believe. And then God's going to get involved. He is going to get involved and he is going to relieve that tension and he is going to come to Abraham in the midst of his crisis of faith. But before we go any further, here's what I want you to understand. I want you to see the fact that Christianity, that the Bible, that our faith is one where doubters and skeptics and questions are welcomed. Okay? Doubters and people who ask good 
questions of the faith are totally welcomed. Now, I want to point this out to you because culture encourages you to believe the exact opposite. Culture pushes you towards, largely towards one of two very extr- large extremes. And the first is that doubters are totally unwelcome in the church. It's sort of like the church is this totalitarian, fascist entity that if you ask any sort of question about anything, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be excommunicated, you're going to be mocked. In the case of the Da Vinci Code, the church is going to hire an albino monk who carries like deadly weapons underneath his robe like a ninja, and he is going to come and hunt you down and try to kill you. So don't ask any questions or it is not going to go well for you. And then because that's taught again and again and again in books and movies, what you're taught is the only viable option is a swing to the other extreme, where basically you can't be certain about anything when it comes to matters of religion. In fact, Voltaire said that certainty is absurd. And even this week, I was listening to Pandora as I was writing this sermon, and I'm kind of on an 80s kick right now. And so I just did an 80s station on Pandora. And this song called This is the Law of Life came across. And this is literally what it said. It said, this is the way the world is. Life is a mystery. There is no explanation you can give. You'll never explain it because life is a mystery. You're taught two extremes. You don't, don't question anything or question absolutely everything. And yet what this text is showing is that both extremes are completely incorrect. The problem with the first is it's not biblical whatsoever. If you read your Bible, I mean, what you're seeing here with Abraham is a man who's asking difficult questions of God. If you know anything about the life of Jesus, there was a man whose daughter was in the process of dying. And the man looks at Jesus and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. You know that one of Jesus' own followers, a man by the name of Thomas, after Jesus had resurrected from the grave, comes to Jesus and says, I want to believe, but I need to see the wounds in your hands to prove that you've resurrected. For, For myself, I demand empirical evidence. And Jesus meets him where he's at. The problem with the second is it's completely illogical. It's completely illogical to be absolutely sure that you can't be absolutely sure of anything when it comes to matters of religion. All you're doing is being dogmatic about never being dogmatic. And all you're doing is being open-minded for the sake of being open-minded. And if that's you tonight, what I would challenge you with, if you think that way, is I would challenge you with the words of G.K. Chesterton, who says that the point of an open mind is the same as an open mouth. It's meant to shut down on something solid. Both ways are completely dead ends. The extreme of questioning nothing, the extreme of questioning everything, and what we see in the life of Abraham is a third way, is a picture of faith-seeking understanding, is a picture of mature doubt, is a picture of having doubts, of having questions, of having objections, but not waxing eloquent about them in some coffee shop in downtown Denver and just talking philosophy for the sake of talking philosophy, but taking his doubts to God. It's a picture of mature faith. It's a picture of mature understanding. It's a picture of having questions, but doing something with those questions. We know that in our city, we're hip, urbanites, post-Christian, 95% of our city doesn't go to church. I mean, if we fall to one of those extremes, we question everything as opposed to questioning nothing. That's cool. I, I love that. I love this city. I, I live here by choice. We own a home in this neighborhood. We love being a part of this community. But here, here's what I would say, because I have a number of conversations along these lines with people who just say you can't really be sure of anything when it comes to matters of God. My challenge to you, my question to you, would just be to ask you, like if that's you and you're here tonight, like Andy said, we're glad that you're here. But, but if, 
if it's shown to you, if your questions are answered, if it's proven to you that it's logically necessary for you to repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and give the rest of your life away to following him, like, will you do it? Will you do it? And I found, at least in my own experience, when I asked that question, uh, the most common response is no. And if that's you, I mean, what you need to understand is you don't have an intellectual objection to Christianity. You have a heart problem when it comes to Christianity, and your questions are merely justification for you not following Jesus. When it comes down to it, if you're going to be, have intellectual integrity, you need to le- go where the evidence leads you. And for Abraham, at least, he, he showed mature faith, he showed mature questioning, and he brought his questions to God. And what you need to understand, yes, doubters are welcome to Christianity, skeptics are welcome to Christianity, questioners are welcome to Christianity, but only mature doubters, only people who do something with their questions, only people who take their doubts to God. That's exactly what Abraham does. Now, Abraham does this, and God responds. Like he said, he's a good and gracious father, and he comes and he gets involved. Now, he gets involved in two major ways. He is going to speak to Abraham, and he is going to show something to Abraham. He's going to speak, and he's going to show. Now, we're going to first see how he is going to speak. We're going to see this in verse 1. But before we do that, what I want you to understand before we go any further is that God is not speaking here out of a vacuum. Okay, God is not the only voice who is speaking here. Now, if you remember a few weeks back in the garden, we see God speaking. We see God speaking truth to the man and the woman, but his voice is not the only one. The garden is not a vacuum, but instead what you see is that there's another voice as well, the voice of a serpent speaking, the voice of Satan speaking and saying, has God really said? God speaking truth, Satan saying, has God really said? And it's in that moment, where a war of words begins in the garden that goes throughout scriptures, through Genesis 15, through the end of the Bible, into history, and carries into today as well. And what you need to understand, what you need to understand is even if tonight, since I don't know all of you, maybe tonight is the first time you've been in church in your entire life, and you think this is the first time you've heard a sermon in your entire life, the reality is, is you need to understand that you've been preached to your entire life, and that every single message that you're exposed to on a day-in, day-out basis is tied into the larger two stories that are being taught. God preaching a sermon of truth, Satan preaching a sermon distorting that truth. That is what you're exposed to on a day-in, day-out basis. You are preached to again and again and again, even if you don't consider yourself spiritual and even if you don't consider yourself religious. And if you're skeptical of that, I encourage you, just, just be aware on the way you live on a day-in, day-out basis and be aware of the fact that like, when you go and check out and pay for your groceries at the Safeway, like all the magazines that are there are preaching a message of something to you and that Men's Health is preaching salvation through six-pack abs and that Cosmo is preaching justification through your sexuality and Better Homes and Gardens is preaching enlightenment through an open floor plan. Well, what you would understand is that when you go to movies and you think that you're just going to merely be entertained, like instead a message is being preached. And for me, I see a trailer for The Grey, and I'm like, sweet, dudes fighting wolves, this seems pretty awesome, I'm going to go see it. And instead what you see is, is a movie with much bigger themes. It is a movie instead talking about issues talking about issues like the nature of reality, the nature of the problem of evil, the nature of God is good or not, the nature of what do we do in the crap that life throws with us, and it concludes, it preaches a message that says, in the end, God is not good, he doesn't care about the suffering that you're undergoing, you just need to deal with that, 
and take control of your own life. What you need to understand is that if you watch TV, you're exposed to commercials again and again and again. And every single industry and every single corporation is trying to put on a pedestal uh, a piece of equipment or some sort of item that you need if you're actually going to be happy in your life. Where I see this more than often is Apple. Like, I love Apple products. I have an iPad, I have an iPhone, and I have a MacBook. And I love it. Like, I watch those commercials and I think to myself, like, this is what heaven is like. Like, I want, I want to have a family like this. I want to have communication like this. I want to have happiness like this. I want to have simplicity like this. I want to be cool, as cool as those people. This is a glimpse into salvation for me. And in fact, I even was talking to a friend of mine who works for Apple, and he says, Apple has a very intentional, very spiritually, uh, a process that has a ton of spiritual language in it to take people from being a skeptic of their products to being a believer in their products to ultimately being a missionary of their products to their friends and their family and the other people that are within their sphere of influence. And what you need to understand then is if you're here tonight and this is the first time you've been to church in your entire life, you've still been preached to your entire life. You've been preached to and chances are you have bought in, you have been indoctrinated, you've been baptized, and you've been commissioned as a missionary for some cause greater than yourself. It is not, you do not live in a vacuum. Everything preaches and it's tied back to two great overarching sermons. The sermon of God preaching truth, the sermon of the serpent speaking distortion of that truth. And so you need to understand that, that when God comes and he speaks to Abraham here, in verses 1 and verse 4, he's not speaking in a vacuum, he's not, just, he's not just talking, but he is speaking against the lies of the serpent. And here's what he says. He says this in verse 1, he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. He comes to him first and he says, you need to know who I am. I'm going to preach to you my nature. I am God, I am good, and I am your shield. And I know, I know you have a million good reasons to fear. I know you have a million good reasons to doubt. But let me give you even greater reason not to fear and doubt. Here is who I am. I am God. I love you. I will be your protector and I will be your shield. Believe and trust in me and I will take care of you. He says something similar in verse 4, if you jump down. In verses 4 and 5, he doesn't just preach his character, his nature, he preaches his character as well. He says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. He says, I know. I know it seems unlikely. I know that the circumstances of life are coming head to head with the promises that I've made to you. But here's what you need to understand. Here's who I am. I am God. I am good. And what I have said that I will do, I will do. What I have said I will do through your life, I will do through your life. I am God. I am all powerful. I am good. This is my character and my nature. Believe. Believe in me. And I love the way he illustrates this. He takes, he takes Abraham out to a field. He has him look up at the stars. And you can imagine how beautiful this would have been because this was before light pollution and things like that. And it would have just been crystal clear. And he says, Abraham, I want you to look at the sky and I want you to see the stars. And just when you begin to doubt, I want you to look at the stars and I want you to take in the magnitude of how many there are, too many for you to count. And I want you to know and I want you to understand to believe that I am going to do through you what I've promised to do through you. And that is the number of people, too many for you to count, that will be blessed 
in and through you and in and through the man that will ultimately come through your line. You will have a son because I've said that you will have a son. I am God and you can trust and believe in me. And what does Abraham do? Well, you see in verse six, he believes. He believes. Even though though he probably had a ton of, of spiritual questions remaining. God, like, if you're all good and all powerful, like, how does this reconcile? Like, why didn't this happen sooner? If you're really all powerful, like, why do we have to wait until we were in our 80s for this thing to go down? Like, he probably had logistical questions still. Like, you know, my wife is well beyond childbearing years. Like, how exactly is this going to happen? Like, how, how is health insurance going to pay for this? Like, it doesn't cover it anymore. Like, how is this going to go down? Even though he had plenty of... of personal and emotional questions. God, like, why did it have to be so hard for us? Why did it have to happen this way? Why couldn't it have been easier? Do you know how much, how draining this was on us? Even though he had a million good questions, spiritual, logistical, emotional, personal, he chooses to believe. He says the evidence is sufficient. The character of God is sufficient. God being who he says he is, is sufficient. And in the midst, the doubt fades the faith increases, and Abraham chooses to believe. This is all in the wake of God coming to Abraham and preaching, that, that Abraham desperately needed a word from God. And God comes and he provides that by his grace and by his mercy. He comes and he speaks. And what you need to understand is this, this need isn't just Abraham's thousands of years ago, but it is our need as well today. And in the midst of doubting, in the midst of crises of faith, in the midst of life, throwing just serious junk at us, what we desperately, desperately need is for God to speak. And by his grace, he has spoken. Not primarily through urges, not primarily through feelings, not primarily through other people, not primarily through writing in the sky, not primarily through alphabet soup. He has spoken through his word, the Bible. The Bible calls itself the word of God. It says it's like a light shining in a dark place. Martin Luther said, let the one who yearns to hear God speak turn his attention to the holy scriptures. And that in your ability to relate to Abraham and in your ability to relate to to Abraham's story and and your ability to understand that this is not just a man who had weak faith. He had really strong faith. He was the father of faith. He was the man of faith. If this was his struggle, this will be our struggle as well. That if if he had a desperate need for God to speak, that we have a desperate need for God to speak as well, that we would recognize that we would recognize that rather than looking at our Bibles largely as an obligation, largely as looking at a quiet time in the morning as the type of thing that we have to do because everybody tells us that we have to do, rather than coming on Sunday nights and thinking that we just preach for 30 minutes through books of the Bible because it seems like some sort of program that we hopefully will work to grow a church, what you would understand is that everything we do in the Christian life, from the way we gather to the way we scatter, is centered around the Word of God because we desperately need God to speak and to reveal who He is is. Common sense and opinions are not sufficient to help us figure that out on our own. We need God to speak. And because of that, you would love and know and cherish your Bible. You would love and know and cherish the opportunity to read your Bible in the morning because you understand for the next 12 hours, you're going to be preached an entirely different sermon, that you would love and know and cherish the opportunity to go through books of the Bible with our church so that we can help teach you how to read and understand and know the Bible and how it points to understand who God is and what he has done for you, that you would be like a soldier who is trapped behind enemy lines, desperately yearning 
for communication from home. And then when you would open this book called the Bible, that you would understand that God is providing just that and that he has spoken and he is revealing his character and nature in a world and a culture that encourages you to doubt and to disbelieve and to be skeptical that God is good and that he will accomplish in and through you what he has promised to accomplish in and through you. So Abraham doubts and God speaks, but here's what he does also. He shows he shows Abraham something as well. It's like, it's like he says to him, I want to show you something, Abraham. And look at verse 9. I love, I love this. This is just beautiful. Look at verse 9. He said to him, this is God, bring me a heifer. It's a cow three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against, one, against the other. But he said, do not, do not cut the birds in half. Verse 11, and when birds of prey came down to, on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now, skip down to verse 17. Verse 17, we're going to see what God does with these animals that he's uh, cut in half. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And after that, you can see the various peoples that inhabited the land at that time. He says, I want to show you something, Abraham. Take animals, cut them in half, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to take half of their carcasses and you're going to put them on one side of an aisle. You're going to take the other half and put them on the other side of the aisle. And you're, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you something. Now, this is bizarre, isn't it? This is, this is pretty bizarre, but it's actually very beautiful. Now, this isn't that foreign to us, okay? Like, we wouldn't do this today, but this isn't that foreign to us. Now, the key to understanding this is really what you see in verse 18. It says, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. That word covenant is really the heart of what's going on here. A covenant is a lot like a contract. So all of you have probably signed contracts at some point in your life. Like, even if you're young and you just got out of college, I mean, the reality is, is, you know, maybe you have your own cell phone plan or something like that. So if you're anything like me, went down to 16th Street to Verizon, and you're like, I want an iPhone, one for me, one for my wife. They hand you like a 50-page contract that you kind of like flip through, you know, at the last, you know, like hopefully this doesn't say anything serious whatsoever. You sign the, the dotted line. They sign their, you know, their line. They give you the iPhones, and you, and you go home. And, and why are you signing your name? Well, what you're communicating in that moment when you sign is that basically if I break this contract, if I break these terms of agreements, then I'm going to bear some consequences for doing that. And Verizon signs it too because if they break the terms of agreement, they they bear some sort of consequences for breaking the agreement as well. That's all that's happening here also. But in this culture, it wasn't wasn't, uh, written. It It was an oral culture. And so because of that, instead of writing contracts, they actually acted out contracts. Okay, you tracking with me still? They're... They're they're acting it out. And so this is the way they would do contracts. They would scatter carcasses on two sides of an aisle. And so two parties would come. They would agree to the terms of the agreement. The first party would pass through. The second party would pass through. It was like their way of signing their name. What it was communicating is that if I break the terms of the agreement, let my body be torn apart the way that these birds and these animals, their bodies are torn apart. If you break the terms of this agreement, let your blood be spilled as well. That's pretty much what it was. And this is exactly what God and Abraham are doing here. They agree to the terms of the agreement. They set up a covenant, and God passes through, and then it ends. And then it ends. That's, that's sort of abnormal. It's, it's basically what it is, is God being the only one who signs his name on this contract and on this covenant. And it's in this moment where you're seeing one of the clearest declarations of the grace of God. 
Because for this covenant of salvation, for God to be the only one to pass through, what he is making is a very clear declaration. He's saying that while a normal contract, a normal covenant would be set up in such a way that if I break the terms of agreement, let my blood be spilled. And if you break the terms of agreement, let your blood be spilled. We're going to set this thing up in such a way that if I break the terms of agreement, my blood spill. If you break the terms of agreement, my blood spill. And that's exactly what happens. Abraham isn't faithful to the covenant. All of those who believe like Abraham aren't faithful to the covenant. Yet in spite of that, Yet in spite of that, rather than Abraham bearing the consequences of that, rather than those who believe like Abraham bearing the consequences of that, God, thousands of years in the future, will become man in the person of Jesus. He will live the life that we should have lived, and he will go to the cross. And he will say, because this covenant has been broken, here's what I'll do to uphold it. Here's what I'll do. I will bear the punishment that you deserve. My body will be torn apart just like these animals. My blood will be spilt just like these animals. Even though this is what you deserve for breaking the terms of agreement, I will take the punishment on myself. And God, by his grace and in his mercy, rather than setting up things the way that that would have made sense to us, rather than setting up things the way that every other religious system sets them up, says, I am going to take it completely on myself to make this thing happen. And what we see in the life of Abraham is what happens in our lives as Christians. We aren't initiators of the salvation. We aren't participants in the salvation. We are merely recipients of it. And that's all Abraham does in the story. He just watches what God does, and he is a mere beneficiary of what God has done on his behalf. What this gets to is what we've been trying to communicate again and again and again and again in this series, that Christianity is unlike any other religious system. It's unlike any other cultural system. It is completely unique in itself. There's nothing else like the gospel. Even that word gospel is purely unique in itself. Even the time that it was coming to rise in the Roman culture that Jesus did most of his ministry in, there was two predominant systems of way of, of thinking of how to relate to God. And you had the Jews and the way that they summarized the way that they related to God was the word Torah. And what it meant was law. And what it meant was the essence of our religion is such that if we can be good enough, if we can perform, if we can behave enough to be loved by God, he will love us, he will bless us, and he will accept us. And there was a countercultural view, uh, the view of the Greeks. And at the heart of their worldview about who God is and how man relates to him was the word gnosis, which means knowledge. And they said, no, 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 it's not about what you do. It's about what you know. And in the end, the people that God blesses are the people who have the right information in their head. It's the educated These two systems have gone forward into today where good conservative Americans say it's all about what you do. Good liberal Americans say it's all about what you know and how educated you are. And Jesus came and presents a third way. Come say, no, 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 it's not about the law and it's not about your knowledge. It's about the gospel. And the word gospel was a military term at the time that was preached that the gospel was preached as a military term to captives in an enslaved land, that when when a military force would come in and liberate captives from an enslaved land, that that those people who had been enslaved, that they would hear the gospel of the general who had freed and liberated them, and their only responsibility was to hear it, accept it, believe it, and apply it to their lives and live like freed men. And what would happen is that scouts would go across the countryside and preach the gospel of the general who freed them and liberated them. And that's what Jesus says. He says, you want to understand the essence, you want to understand the heart of the true faith, the one true religion. It's not about what you know, 
It's not about what you do. It's all about what I have done for you. By living the life you should have lived, dying the death you should have died, and resurrecting from the grave, providing you victory over sin, death, Satan, and hell. It was a completely countercultural view. And it was true all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. You look again at chapter 15, verse 6. This is chapter 15, verse 6 is quite possibly the most important verse in the entire Old Testament and one of the most important in the entire Bible. And Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. That was it. He didn't have to know anything. He didn't have to do anything. He simply received. It made me think this week, I was talking to Andy about cell phone contracts and things like that. And he said, really, the best way to understand it isn't even really a cell phone contract. It's more like, it's more like a will. Like all you do, uh, the will as a, as a legal document, all you do is reap the benefits of somebody else's work, right? Somebody else dies. All you do is show up, sign a piece of paper, and you, receive the, you reap the benefits of what that person has spent a lifetime accomplishing. That's what happened for Abraham. He just shows up, he believes in what is credited to him, what is given to him, what is bestowed on him. Not because he deserved it, because of the grace of God is the righteousness that he required if he was going to have peace with God. He simply, bece- he simply believed and received. Now here's what we're going to do tonight. We are going to give all of us an opportunity to receive and believe, just like Abraham, just like Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, just like just like the early Christians, just like those of you today who have had your lives changed by Jesus simply by receiving and believing. We're going to do this by celebrating communion, okay? Celebrating communion. This is something that Jesus did right before his death. And what he did was he gathered his closest followers and he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And what it what it brings us back to is Genesis chapter 15 where God says, if my body has to be torn apart like these animals, it will be torn apart for you. And Jesus takes wine and he pours it. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It will be spilt for you. And what it, what it reminds us of is Genesis chapter 15 where God says, even if my blood has to be spilt like these animals, I will do so to uphold and fulfill this covenant of salvation. What Jesus says is every time you break bread, every time you take of the cup, you do this in remembrance of my sacrifice that is purchased for you salvation. So that's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you an opportunity to come forward. You can come forward if you've been a follower of Jesus for 20 years. If you've been a follower for Jesus for 20 years. You to come up and take of the bread and the cup and to celebrate that God's body has been broken, his blood has been spilt on your behalf. This is a great way for those of you who aren't followers of Jesus but want to commit to being a follower of Jesus, to make that commitment. To say, God, I want to stop trying to know, I want to stop trying to do, I want to stop trying to figure this thing out for myself, but instead I want to celebrate and accept and believe what you have already done for me. I want that applied to my life. Taking communion for the first time as a Christian is a great way to do that. And we encourage you to do that. And if you do that, email me, tell me, tell somebody so we can celebrate that with you and we can, we can recognize you and we can celebrate what God has done in your life. If you're here tonight and you're skeptical and you're, questioner and you don't want to do anything like that's totally fine like Andy said every single week we have people here who aren't Christians and aren't followers of Jesus we're glad that you're here you can sit there nobody's going to point fingers at you or make you stand up or sing or do anything we're just glad that you're here 
If you want to follow Jesus and if you want to recommit your life to following Jesus, what I encourage you, take of the bread, take of the cup, receive and believe the salvation that has been purchased to you. Like Abraham, believe so that righteousness can be credited to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much uh, for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you so much that um, salvation does not come down to what we know. It doesn't come down to what we do, but it comes down to what has been done for us on our behalf. We thank you in the midst of a culture that teaches us the exact opposite, that you have spoken. We thank you that in a culture that encourages the exact opposite that you have shown And I pray for those of us who desperately want you to speak that we would look to your word, the Bible. I pray for those of us who want to hear, who want to have you show us something that we would look to your work on the cross and we would understand that you are who you say you are, that you are good, you are gracious. And God, the good that you have promised to accomplish through our lives will be done, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, because you are God, you have said it is so, and it will be done. And so, God, we pray that as we celebrate communion, as we remember Jesus' body being broken, his blood being spilled on our behalf, that we would apply this to us and that we would live the redeemed life. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.